Nonprofit Lowdown. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Rhea Wong. In this podcast, I recommend a book, tool, tip, podcast, or resource that has helped me to build a multi-million dollar nonprofit organization. I've done the research, so you don't have to. Let's get started. Hey, podcast listeners, it's Rhea with you once again with Nonprofit Lowdown. So today I have a very special guest, my friend Caroline Kim O. Oh. She is the former president and CEO of iMentor, and she is now a very successful executive coach. And so we're going to talk all about her transitions in leadership and to starting her own business and what she had to do in order to be the successful coach she is today. So we're going to hear all about it. And without further ado, welcome, Caroline. Hi, Ria. Hi. So tell us a little bit about yourself and your path to leadership. Sure. Like you said, I'm currently working as an executive and leadership coach to nonprofit leaders, women leaders, and a whole host of folks doing really cool, interesting things. I work with a lot of entrepreneurs, writers, executives. So it's been been really fun. And this is exactly what I want to be doing now. I also do a lot of facilitation work, board retreats, staff retreats. I teach women's entrepreneurship certification program with eCornell and Bank of America sponsored program. Yeah. So it's been, it's, it's like a a quilt (laughs) that I feel like I designed and I keep adding stuff to it. Right. So it's been a lot, it's been a lot of fun. I started my career really in the nonprofit field, right out of college. I wanted to do something that was meaningful and, and helping people. So I worked for two small nonprofit organizations based here in New York City called the Small Business Congress and Korean American Small Business Center. My parents were running the classic, like tiny ice cream store run by (laughs) a little Korean family, right? And we also used to run a coffee shop by NYU Law School. So it just made sense to me. Everything from helping small business folks get through all the the New York City codes and and helping them learn about all the the codes and and, and how to get past the violations to get the business to open up. Mm. How do you keep yourself safe from crimes against small businesses, Mm. right? Lobbying efforts against big businesses that were coming in, like Mm -hmm. the Home Depots and, and places that were coming in to force out the small business mom and pop stores all Mm -hmm. over the city. So I worked as a a program coordinator working who knows how many hours filled with people that really care about the mission, about the people that we're serving. But it was like the worst run place. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So I remember as a recent college grad being in charge of the only fundraising event that was to bring in a huge chunk of money for the organization and everyone praying that it wouldn't rain that day. And, you know, as a 20-year-old or 21-year-old, I was like, there's got to be a better way (laughs) to do this. So I ended up going to get my master's in public administration at NYU. Mm -hmm. And I worked at NYU I'm very practical, the child of immigrants. So I knew if I was going to serve in nonprofit management work, I wasn't going to take out additional loans. <laughs> so I worked at NYU as a, a full-time staff and went to school for free. And then my first job out of graduate school was my dream job, really. And that was as the program director, first program director of iMentor, which mm-hmm. was a startup at the time. Mm-hmm. And it's a youth mentoring program that has really evolved to one of one of the key, and I'm so proud of it, <laughs> one of the key organizations helping 
first generation college students, well, helping the high school students, right, and giving them mentors and and guidance and support mm. to help them be successful college students mm. and successful adults, right? So I, I was there for 12 and a half, almost 13 years, helping to grow the organization nationally, helping to grow the staff from really handful of us to close to 100 people by the end of my tenure there. Again, a lot of things I'm proud of, but I mean, perhaps even more things that I'm cringing about every day. <laughs> I made so many mistakes. Didn't we all, Caroline? Oh my gosh. So that, I mean, that's really how I ended up starting my post-diamental career as a, a nonprofit coach, mm-hmm. coach to nonprofit leaders, to share some of the mistakes that I made, but also giving people the space to and permission to talk about things that are hard, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? And how do we get past those challenges to become successful leaders, mm-hmm. right? That are caring about other people and the organizations that they're leading, but also becoming successful people, mm-hmm. right? So that's how I started my coaching work and it has developed to work with a lot of different kinds of people. Okay. But yeah. Let me pause there because I, I want to talk about your transition to coaching. But yes. before we do that, I just like want to briefly stop because I have noticed that it's very rare to find Asian American female executives in the nonprofit world, probably in the world. But let's you know, let's talk about our little section of the nonprofit, mm. and particularly Asian Americans who weren't heading up Asian American organizations. Yeah. So I would go to these events and I would look around. I was the only one like me. Did you get imposter syndrome around? Oh, I'm not. I'm not black or Latino, and how can I speak for these? <laughs> oh, you know this is so interesting. I totally had that. You had that. Yeah. So how how did you overcome that? Well, I had an imposter syndrome around a lot of different things. Uh-huh. So one thing was that I, I mean, I loved our first executive director, mm-hmm. Rich Beery, mm-hmm. who is now with KIPP National Office. So he's. You know, he's he grew up in East New York and he went to Stuyvesant and Harvard mm-hmm. and, you know, that sort of classic combination of, you know, he he's done it all mm-hmm. and he's nice and mm-hmm. he's so smart and everyone loves him. And, and mm-hmm. I also loved him. Right. And physically, he's he's very tall. He's quite imposing. <laughs> right. you know, exactly. He takes up a lot of you, space. Yeah. He walks in and people notice. Right. Yeah. And I felt like, you know, I'm like five two on a good day. <laughs> <laughs> I know, it was probably skinnier then. <laughs> and I, you know, I didn't grow up in in the States. I came to this country when I was 13. Uh-huh. So, you know, I, I mean, I'm, I'm fine now, but I, I still had even more than now, sort of this idea that English is not my first language. Mm. So I felt even though I went to great schools and I was, I, you know, I was trained and, and all of these things and I gave really like all of myself to the job. On so many levels, mm-hmm. I felt like I was not, I was not a great replacement for Rich. Mm-hmm. Like I was honored to be well, in that role. I mean, it, that's, a, that's a very tough act to follow. I will say, like of, of all the acts to follow. <laughs> yeah. So at every level, right? Yeah. I, I've never been an executive director. I'm only 27. Yeah. I felt like my I didn't have a great like speaking presence. Mm-hmm. I didn't feel like. You know, if I walked into the communities that we're serving, even though I grew up poor, even though, you know, I'm a child of immigrants, so I'm an immigrant myself, I was 13, right? I felt like people would see me and not see me Mm. as somebody who could 
represent them or who cared about them. I mm-hmm. feel like I had to work extra hard to connect with them. And whereas I felt like if Rich walked in, right, and spoke about our work, people would feel proud yeah. that he was there, right? Yeah. Sort of a sense that even whether he is or not, like, oh, he's, he's I'm like him, right? Yeah. And I'm, I'm a huge believer in showing young people like oh like people who look like me and talk like me and speak like me right yeah there are these models for different models for what i can be right just like you know with president obama i think there is a huge value in that so that's like the extra like imposter syndrome angle that that i came to the job with yeah I mean, for me, it was a little bit different because I was a product of the organization. So I could speak very authentically about what we did. And so in that way, I was kind of the perfect spokesperson. But I agree that because the majority of the students that we served were Black or Latino, it did feel... You know what I think it was is that I would walk into a room of funders, for example, and have them have to make that adjustment in their minds about like, well, why are, why is this little Asian person coming to speak on behalf? That's really right. Yeah. 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 And, and mind you, I was the first program director. So I came from within the organization too. Right. And everyone knew, I I mean, I, I think that ultimately I was the best person. So it's Mm -hmm. not that I think that I wasn't good at the job or or whatnot, but Mm -hmm. I think, and also I think I just had a lot of imposter syndrome yeah. in general. So it was just like another one that, yeah. that felt, and that's something, it's funny. It's not something I can change, mm-hmm. right? So it's not like I could have read up more about fundraising or I could have taken a public speaking course or something like that. I was, I think that one is coming up for me now because you just, and it's not something that I talk about with a lot of people because mm-hmm. there aren't that many <laughs> little Asian women, I think, leading yeah. nonprofit organizations that are beyond yeah serving asian Asian. american issues especially at that time so that's that's coming up for me but it's interesting because i'm picking on something that i can't change yeah 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 Yeah, it's funny so a recent podcast i did was with two asian american women as well and we were talking a lot about you know how do you battle the stereotypes of Asian women in particular being, Mm -hmm. I feel like there's this dichotomy of like, you're either the dragon lady or you're weak and submissive, right? Right. It's a geisha or the dragon lady. And it was like, I didn't get that memo. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And, and so, you know, I think in part for me, it was growing up in the Bay area where everybody was Asian. So like it never occurred to me that I was the other until I left. And I was like, Oh, you mean the whole world isn't Asian people? (laughs) Weird. But it's been interesting. And I've thought a lot after the fact about what does it mean to have operated and raised money in predominantly mm-hmm. white spaces mm-hmm. as in Asian American women and what, you know, in some ways there's a tremendous amount of privilege, right? Because I think being perceived as white adjacent means mm-hmm. that you, you're able to navigate like certain spaces more easily. And on the other hand, makes it difficult too because of the stereotype of like, oh, well, you know, you're quiet, you're meek, you're submissive, you're not leadership material. Mm. Is that something that you've ever battled with? No one's actually said those things, but yeah, I think I think that is right. Mm-hmm. And it's it was interesting to see. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. And and just I mean, like Sesame Street, the first ED was Rich Beery, mm-hmm. and then there is me, small Asian American woman, and then the current CEO is Michael Bryan, who is a white male, right? Mm-hmm. 
so yeah, I, that's that's an interesting thing to think about. <laughs> yeah, cool. I'm sure we can dive into that in a whole other point. But you know, it's it's funny too because I think about, you know, I talk to a lot of my my sisters of color, and they talk about microaggressions and you know some yeah. some macroaggressions. Sure. And you know, I never. I didn't experience macroaggressions in mm. the same way, but you know, there, there are things that were like, I remember this, what usually happened was like being in a room with high net worth individuals, predominantly white people who, you know, and I know this was like an attempt to try to connect, but invariably they would say something like, well, my son is married to a Chinese girl. <laughs> read ergo I'm not racist because like my grandchildren are half Chinese they're like oh but I love Chinese food of course and they're just like I don't know what to tell (laughs) always ask for Korean barbecue recommendation oh my god (laughs) Korean barbecue recommendation (laughs) oh lord Okay, well, that is another topic for another day yeah but super quick I, I do remember going into like a room full of funders, other nonprofit leaders at conferences and things like that. Mm-hmm. And especially in the beginning, I, I would often be the only Asian person, forget oh, yeah. Asian woman or yeah, Asian yeah. man, just me. And I remember feeling really uncomfortable in that mm-hmm. setting because I grew up in communities where there are a lot of different kinds of people, definitely a lot of Asian people. So that took some time adjusting. Mm-hmm. And then at some point, I remember shifting my mind to like realize huh, like I'm the only one here and they're going to remember what I say Mm -hmm. and they're going to remember who I am, Mm -hmm. right? When I'm leaving this whatever networking meeting or whatever. So that puts, in some ways, that puts more pressure on me, right? Mm Because if I mess up, they're going to remember, oh, that short Asian woman Mm. said the stupid thing. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, if you're trying to get noticed or get your point across, build partnerships, whatever, if you do a good job, People remember you, right? Mm-hmm. So I remember making that that shift in my mind. That's interesting. Just, just a quick aside. Yeah. All right. Last thing, because I think this is so interesting. <laughs> we always do this. I know. Well, we have a lot of fun together. But I, I just feel like there's this weird thing where Asian people are not considered to be people of color. Mm-hmm. And so I remember I had one junior staff member who, there were lots of other things happening, but in her exit interview, she said something like, well, you know, because the senior leadership of this organization is all white. <laughs> and I was like, I was like, ah, like, what could that mean? Mm. And like, I don't know if she meant white in terms of like a power dynamic. Like, yeah. I don't really know, but I, it was like, I'm, I'm still thinking about it years later because at the, well, and also at the time, like I was the head of the organization. I had a Latina COO. I had a Trinidadian CFO <laughs> and, a, and a, a white program director. And I was just like, literally 25% of the leadership yeah. team is white. And so, but it was like, I just keep thinking about like, does she think that I'm white? <laughs> like in her mind, I mean, did you ask? <laughs> no, I mean, it was like, she was gone anyway, but like, I, I still like think about it in the sense that I think, like, I know that she knows that I'm not a white person, yeah. but I think that in her mind, somehow being Asian equated to kind of white culture or like having the same kind of white privilege. Mm. And and I think that that sort of plays out a lot in what we're seeing socially and politically. 
too. Mm. And like, who's really talking to the Asian American community mm. in a political sense? Who's really mobilizing Asian Americans around really important social issues like immigration, which, by the way, is actually probably the most applicable to mm-hmm. us being the most recent Im- recently mm-hmm. immigrated group, or even issues like Black Lives Matter, like as a community, we really should be standing in solidarity. And yet Absolutely. I, I find yeah. this in like this weird I think space. We're all contributing to that dynamic, right. right? And that's been going on for a long time. And I have to say, when I think back to my college years, when like the the, the first LA right, mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, we were going way back, right? Mm-hmm. When I compare it to that time and how there was no, no one would have ever thought at that time the the Asian the, the Koreans and Chinese and the blacks and Latinos I don't think it would have occurred to a lot of people to even call them people of color as a mm-hmm. group yeah right when I think about that and when I think about you know if you even just look on Twitter or something as simple as that there's a lot more support among these groups mm-hmm. to express more care for each other and, and show more solidarity. So I'm, I am noticing that. Mm-hmm. And and this sort of idea of the minority, the model minority, mm-hmm. that was like the term in the 80s and probably even 90s, so this myth that, oh, look at the, we've been used by white America mm-hmm. this whole time, right? Oh, look at the, the Asians, right? They yeah. came here with nothing, yeah. right? And they worked hard. They don't complain. They yep. don't cause trouble. Yeah. And look, they all went to Harvard and Yale yeah. and, you know, whatever. Their partner is a law firm or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. So that's been used by... And if, if you ever feel curious about looking at the LA riot, mm-hmm. I mean, literally the white police, mm-hmm. right? stayed away from the the Korean-run businesses, it's almost like, okay, like, there's steam, there's anger right. <laughs> that needs to be let out, yeah. right? We're not gonna, we're not gonna let them come to the white area, but let the, let the people of color duke it out. So mm. you, you saw these really visceral images of Korean business people standing on the rooftop of their store trying mm-hmm. to protect their business mm-hmm. with guns pitted against, mm-hmm. right? Ang- like, visually, right? Mm-hmm. It's like, Angry black people rioting, mm-hmm. right? And Korean businesses trying to like protect themselves and like against these people, right? Mm-hmm. So it's a very and the, the cops are nowhere to be seen, mm-hmm. right? So it's it's pitting the the blacks against the Koreans, mm-hmm. right? Keeping the the white people out of the narrative mm-hmm. when the the actual cause of the issue, <laughs> right, was not right. So it's, it's like a very interesting, yeah, yeah. By white officers so me King. as an eternal like, I don't know I I pay a lot of attention to progress if I don't see progress I feel really I really suffer Mm -hmm. (laughs) so I see little glimmers of Mm -hmm. more cooperation more collaboration and more of willing to consider other people of like the people of color that term didn't really people didn't talk about that yeah so it's true so I appreciate that yeah and yes and all of the things that you're saying yeah is true (laughs) So this is actually, okay, maybe we should talk about this because I think it's super interesting because I I feel like of late, the Asian community has mobilized around like Harvard admissions stuff, Mm -hmm. which Mm. is like, okay, you guys, like I, I, I see the inequity here, but I also, and I also think that there are so many other more important things that we as a community really need to address Mm. around issues of 
I don't know, basic access to healthcare and mm-hmm. the war on women's yeah. rights and, you know, immigration and, you know, innocent people getting shot in the streets. And so like, why is it, do you think, and I, you know, I, I don't know that anyone Well, I think that's another classic thing, right? Yeah. So they're making it about Black, like Black and Latino student admission versus Asian American right. student admission. And they're letting us duke it out. Yep. With very, I mean, it's not a lot of spots we're talking about. When you're talking about the legacy people and all the recent scandals, Mm -hmm. like, are we really talking about the whole pool and about the the super privileged kids getting their spots already assigned to them from the very beginning of time (laughs) versus the the hardworking, you know, Asian immigrant parents, (laughs) (laughs) immigrant parents, like spending all their money on test prep so that their Mm -hmm. kids can have better chance versus the black and Latino kids that have to like prove their like, Oh, we're, you know, we, mm-hmm. we're not here just because of uh, a quota. We, we have something to contribute to the school. And so I, I think that's another, like, that's LA riot mm-hmm. in a much nicer setting, mm-hmm. right? Again, like, we're really talking about equity and access and yeah. true, you know, who deserves to go to what school. I think there's, there's more to that. And it's also like the top leadership positions or the pastoral leadership positions are you know meant to be tied to these very few institutions who's who set that up yeah yeah <laughs> right? That's right like i mean that's whole other question yeah, the systematic yeah. underpinnings of it so why why yeah i mean the, the these spots are so coveted because it's interesting because oh because i also just think about the term asian american which mm. like doesn't even actually really make sense mm. because if you think about all of the, I mean, it probably also doesn't make sense to say Latino or sure, it's Black, right? It's like, there's literally kind of nothing in common other than the fact that you're in a general mm-hmm. geographic area, mm-hmm. right? Like, we don't look the same, we mm-hmm. don't speak the same language, we don't eat the same foods, we don't have the same religion, we don't have, like, mm-hmm. so to say Asian American is a monolith is mm. really problematic to me because, mm-hmm. like, the experience of, a Pakistani American is really sure. different than a Chinese American, mm-hmm. which is really different than a Laotian American, which is really different than a Korean American, right? Mm-hmm. So it's like, what are we even talking about here? Yes, and I wonder if that will start to change a little bit as our like history in America gets deeper and longer. I, yeah. I wonder, because you can say the same thing about, like you said, Black America, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, so I, I, I wonder. And there are people, I identified my self as Korean American, right? Mm-hmm. And I also have friends who feel more kinship with the term Asian American than Korean American. Mm. Right? And something about the collective experience of mm-hmm. Asian Americans versus something very specific like Korean American because that feels more like ethnic mm-hmm. identity. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I don't have strong feelings about that. Yeah. Okay, we're gonna switch tack. <laughs> super interesting, but I but I also want to talk about this other really interesting yes. thing. So of late, I've had a lot of folks who are executive directors or CEOs transition into yeah. new careers. And often those careers look like going out on their own. Mm -hmm. A lot of them have decided that they don't want to take another leadership position, or at least maybe not right now. And so I spend a lot of my time kind of telling people about how I made my transition to 
working for myself, which by the way is awesome. And I'm going to do a whole series <laughs> about that. Yep. But I want to talk to you about your transition from being the president and CEO of iMentor to working for yourself. And like, what is, as a coach, yeah. you obviously think a lot about the internal blockages and the ways in which we as individuals are able to manifest the thing that we want to do. So like, what did it take for you to go from, you know, this job where you were well-respected, you had a certain, like you, sure. you had a job that people understood yeah. versus like a consultant and coach. What is that? Yeah. And especially like, I want to say this last thing, being Asian myself, when I told my parents that I was doing that, they're like, what is that? Are you going to make any money? Mm-hmm. And so the last time I was home, my mom like slid a check towards me. She's like, just didn't oh. get it. I was very sweet. I was like, it's, it's okay, mom. Like, Your I'm, mom loves you. She does love me. But also like, how do you explain to Asian parents who sure. have had a job? Oh, believe me, I couldn't even explain nonprofit management oh, <laughs> to no, anyone I, I knew. <laughs> oh, wait, you'll find this funny. They're like, wait, so are you a lawyer? <laughs> no, I, I was running in this nonprofit my, my parents like still did not understand my oh, name. Yeah. They're like, wait, wait, what do you do? <laughs> oh my gosh. Every time my parents, they were trying so hard to understand what I did so they could explain to their friends at church <laughs> and my grandmother. <laughs> <laughs> and my when I first got married to my husband or when I met his parents who are also Korean-American, they were like, what, what is that? And, and, like, yeah, and my husband, my of course, had no idea what I was doing. My grandmother was like, are you a volunteer? That's, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's like as close as people would get to. Yeah. Or, oh, you must be a lawyer. So at some point, my grandma decided that I went to law school. Okay. But I was getting my master's in public administration. <laughs> and I was like, okay, whatever. Yeah, whatever you need to tell yourself. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So, yes, I had a job as um, president of my mentor. I was there for 12 and a half years. It was my dream job. I loved talking about the work, thinking about the work. I I loved my identity as mm-hmm. a president of my mentor. So, oh my gosh! Yes, my yes. same email address. I loved everything about about all of that. Right. Yet I knew I wanted to start something new. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to be the I mental grandmother. <laughs> like oh my gosh! Like. I, you know, once I leave here, I have nowhere to go. Like I yeah. just started to have these sort of thoughts that I wanted to do something different and I didn't mm-hmm. know what. And now I know that I was like scared. I mm-hmm. would call that fear now, but mm-hmm. I didn't even have the language for stuff like this because yeah. I was always like, go, 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 work yeah. harder, faster, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what happened was I couldn't, I had this vague idea that I wanted to become a coach because mm-hmm. I had a mentor named Barbara Chang, who was also a nonprofit CEO. And she was married at the time to a famous coach mm-hmm. who was advising a lot, of, working with a lot of startup, like tech startup mm-hmm. CEOs. And I had known him to be like a serious executive, right? Mm-hmm. And Barbara was saying how much he enjoyed his work. And he really felt like he was making impact and helping people and just as importantly, there was a lot of demand for his work. Mm. And when I think about the word coach, I'm, I'm a classic like mentor, like caretaker. You know, I, yeah. work, I ran a mentoring program, right? Yeah, literally. Literally, yeah. I'm a big sister. You yeah. know, I'm like the mom wherever I go, right? Yeah. But I thought like coach is like someone who sits and does like breathing exercises <laughs> with you, <laughs> right? Like, oh, mom, Open your mind. Yeah, like I had met one life coach that I was just like, I made fun of her at yeah. the time. Now I know life coaches like that that are really great too. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. so when I saw Jerry, who was this famous coach, 
Oh, he's like a really serious business guy. He used to run a venture capital. I respect him. He's smart, right? Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, that's really interesting. So what kind of coach is he, right? Mm-hmm. What, and so Barbara was saying, well, you know, because he has experience in the boardroom, right? Mm-hmm. He was a, a VC. Mm-hmm. And a lot of these coaches, frankly, are like middle-aged psychology major women. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm a middle-aged woman, <laughs> Right. But kind of like like me, like women in, in their mid 30s or 40s or 50s. Mm-hmm. And so all these men in tech, right, who just raised like billion dollars in seed funding or whatever. But like, you know, they don't even want to ask for directions. Right. They don't right. know what they're doing. Right, right, right. <laughs> so they're all flocking to Jerry because they're like, oh, he's a business guy. Who right. really knows this stuff. And right. this is not like going to a psychologist or a co- counselor. Right. Yeah. I can really like go in and have this guy's help. So I went and met with Jerry mm-hmm. and he talked to me about what coach coaching was, what coaching wasn't, mm-hmm. how he reinvented himself as a coach after mm-hmm. leaving a career in finance. Mm-hmm. So then I thought, huh, like, I think I could be the Jerry of nonprofit leaders, <laughs> right? I love That's it. really what I was thinking. Yeah. But I had this thought, but then I didn't know how to make that happen, yeah. right? And I, because I, my fear for becoming an, an I meant to grandmother was even larger than the need to, like, have something figured out. Yeah. And I always gave, like, 110% when I worked at I mentor. So. Right. I left, <laughs> right? I had a like a retirement, whatever, going away party. I left and I took like a self-sponsored or husband-sponsored sabbatical. Right. And then trying to like reinvent myself as a coach. But I, I just couldn't do it. I was so stuck in my head yeah. and in my heart. I was really scared. I was yeah. like, okay, I just left this job that that was so amazing and everyone thought it was so great for me, right? It sounds and it was important. If I start telling people that I'm a coach and consultant, will people think that I couldn't find a job? Mm. (laughs) Right? Two, remember how I felt about that life coach. So, oh my gosh, people are think that I'm like crazy. (laughs) Three, okay, I feel like I have something to contribute and I learned a lot from my experience and you know, all these cringeworthy things that I've done as a leader. But really, you know, am I qualified to give this kind of advice, Mm -hmm. right? I think I need to have like two more leadership roles under my belt Mm -hmm. before I can honestly tell people I can help you, right? I mean, it's imposter syndrome, right? Yeah, well, I also think as women, we think that like, oh, just like one more course, one more degree, one more podcast, one more, then I'll be ready. And now I know gone forever, right? So I'm always like two jobs away from the thing that I really want to do. Right, right, (laughs) right. right, right. So, and then then there was this whole thing. It wasn't required, but I had this idea, well, if I'm going to be a coach, I'm going to be the best possible coach and I want to get certified, Mm -hmm. right? But it was a, a really big financial and, time commitment Mm -hmm. and I felt like I had neither Mm -hmm. and I felt like okay I'm taking the sabbatical it's one thing to like not make any money (laughs) and take a sabbatical and take care of my kids more full-time which is like what I wanted to do it's another thing to be like hey I already have a master's degree (laughs) but I think I want to take this coaching class Mm -hmm. just in case I want to become a coach someday. Mm-hmm. Like I, I didn't feel brave enough to have that conversation with my husband mm-hmm. or, you know, to charge it. 
on credit card. I mean, now it seems silly, but it felt like a really real thing at the time. And I thought about it all the time. Mm. So it, it was just like unique, yeah. circular hell that I created for myself. Right. So even though I was enjoying my time with my kids and learning stuff and doing all these things that I always wanted to do if I ever didn't work for more than a week, because I only took like eight weeks of maternity leave too, mm. right? Like I always worked since I was 13. Yeah. But even as I was enjoying that time, I was constantly thinking, okay, I want to become a coach, but I can't become a coach without being certified. But I'm not paying for certification without knowing for sure that I want to be a coach. Mm -hmm. But I'll never know if I want to be a coach unless I try coaching. But right. I can't try coaching unless right. I it's got certified. So it's just crazy logic that I created for myself. Right. And I, you know, I only share this like with maybe three friends or so. And I went out and did research. Hey, would you, you know, do you think I need certification? Right. Talking to places like foundations and nonprofit leaders to see. And at that time, everyone said, oh, everyone except for one person, right, said, you don't need to be certified. People hire you for your experience and they'll start working with you right away. Right. But then I'm thinking, but I want to be certified. Right. And there was that one person who said I should be certified. Right. Yeah. So it was, it was like a no win situation right and my good friend wayne who worked at i mentor with me was saving up for his own business and he said caroline i'm gonna pay for your coaching <laughs> right i know you're gonna be an amazing coach right. you can pay me back with your coaching money right right and then i was so touched and so like i felt so supported and loved but I was like, get out of here. I can't take your money. Like, yeah. I refuse to take it, right? right? So I was just, like, not a helpable person at the time. Yeah. <laughs> because it was all in my head. Yeah. And for me, it took working with my first coach, Jan Brown, to get me unstuck from that crazy place. And, so what yeah. did Jan do to help you? Because I think I'm sure that this is resonating with a lot of folks listening, which yeah. is like, I, I want to do this thing. I don't really know how to do this thing. And I'm also putting up all these blockers yeah. to keep me from doing this thing because really I'm afraid to do this thing. So I'm going to make it about money or I'm going to make it about time or I'm going to make it about something else. Yeah, no, that I think you called it blockers. That's exactly right. So I kept putting blockers in front of myself. Because right. literally <laughs> someone was like, yeah, I will pay for the thing. Yeah. And you're People like, no, I can't do it. showing me the way. And I'm yeah. like, nope. <laughs> right? So working with Jen for me work, and working with a coach for me helped me see that pattern. Mm -hmm. Like I had no idea I was doing that. In my mind, it was a very unique, very legitimate. Oh yeah, you're a special snowflake. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right, like course. no one, no, nobody understands my particular situation. Right, right, right. Why, you know, why I can't charge this or, yeah. you know, why and my husband's a wonderful person but why I want to talk to my husband about yeah, this right why I can't take Wayne's money yeah right so say so my mind it was a very unique situation so having a coach that can ask these questions and help you see what you're doing yep right so you can't fight the thing that you don't know right. <laughs> so she helped me see that that's what I was doing yeah and and she reassured me that this is like, I'm not the only person who does this to themselves. Yep. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with me, right? And then once you identify the problem, okay, so what is possible? Mm -hmm. And what what is it about coaching that you're, what is it that you want to do, right? Mm -hmm. So whether it's with Jen or whether I'm working with my clients now, super helpful to, helpful to go back to your original vision. Like, what is this really about? What am I trying to do here mm -hmm. again, right? Like, regroup, yeah. right? 
Because once you start staring at all the problems, you get super narrow focused and mm-hmm. you're like looking down at your feet the whole time, right? Yeah. Look up a little bit yeah. <laughs> and think about your vision and your whole life. Like, what am I trying to do again, yeah. right? So get reconnected to your vision, right? And then you want to feel really good about all the strengths and skills and things that you bring to this yeah. situation, right? And get really honest about, okay, these are all the, the good qualities I have about starting a business, whether I'm really organized or I have the supportive network or mm-hmm. I have some savings mm-hmm. or, oh, like I have a job that's flexible now where I don't have to quit my job right away right. and I can start doing these things on the side or whatever it may be, like taking stock of your strengths and skills and assets, mm-hmm. including people who care about you, whatever it is, yeah. your health, whatever, right? Yeah. And get really grounded in that. So get Because when you're feeling safer, when you're feeling secure and strong, you mm-hmm. can take more risks. When you're thinking from that deficit mindset, mm-hmm. right? And I kept thinking, oh my gosh, if I don't do another full-time job now, I'll never have a full-time I'll job. I'll never have like, another yeah. job. I know. It's always <laughs> so like a scarcity mindset. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So you want to feel more abundant and feel... And then, and then you can come up with some options, Yeah. right? So... My favorite trick around getting past like the fear-based blockers that I create for myself is like, I want to do something. So I want to, I get this a lot from like, so for example, of uh, executive directors trying to leave the space, let's mm-hmm. say, right? And this is not just executive directors, anyone who's trying to reinvent themselves mm-hmm. or start a new role or something. I want to leave my job, Right. Fine. So you set something that you want and immediately the fears start talking yep. to you in your head. So, but I, mm-hmm. right? Oh my gosh, but I just bought a new house. Right. Or, but my husband's thinking about leaving his job. Right. Or, but I just, you know, I'm only, you know, six months into this role. And if I mm-hmm. don't complete like three years, people think that I'm a flake or whatever, right, right, right. like these thoughts yep. come up, right? Mm-hmm. And they feel, and these are always like based on some real information. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is true. You've only been there for six months. Yeah, it is true that your husband's thinking about leaving his job, right? right. And because they're based on some real information, it feels really scary. Mm-hmm. And the, the impact that these thoughts have on your original goal or Mm -hmm. the thing that you want, it's very severe, Mm -hmm. right? It tends to shut it down. Mm -hmm. So instead of saying, oh, I want to leave my job, but I don't know, but I just bought a new house, right? So then then you just stop right there and then you you just shut it down and then you live with that sort of like having shut down the thing that you want mm-hmm. until the next time something happens and triggers the same thing all over mm-hmm. again, yeah. <laughs> right? But you never, you really sit and think through, okay, so I will what? Yeah. Right? So you can like add so I will mm-hmm. to trigger like a creative, more mm. generative mindset, mm. right? So I want to quit my job, but I bought a new house. Okay, so I will figure out exactly how much money I need for, you know, whatever, mm-hmm. payments yep. and whatever. Or so I will not leave this job until I find a different job. I mean, right. what happens is it just shuts you down and you, right. s- you don't actually do it. You don't do your resume. Yeah, yeah. You don't start networking. You don't do any of the stuff that you would be doing, yeah. regardless of whether you bought a house or not. Right. <laughs> right. Just with this fact that you bought a house. So don't leave a job until you have something else set up. Right. Yeah. Or talk to your husband about his timing, about, you know, yeah. whatever it is. Yeah. So that's like a really important trick that I share with a lot of my clients mm-hmm. and all the the women business owners that are starting their own business through the certification program that that I'm part of. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like just 
be honest about the fears you have, <laughs> right? And then do something about it, yeah. right? So I compare this to like a fire alarm. Mm-hmm. I live in a big house with like, I don't know how many fire smoke alarms I have, mm-hmm. right? And every now and then something will go off, mm-hmm. right? And that's literally there to just like say, hey, danger. It's mm-hmm. like a little trigger. Mm-hmm. It's just like, oh, I want to leave a job. I, you don't want to be homeless. Beep, beep, beep. It's like yeah. the alarm, right? Yeah. So then what you want to do is, okay, you want to assess the situation. Mm-hmm. Is there a fire? <laughs> right? As so it's like running out yeah. in your underwear, yeah, like right. screaming and calling So you fire. figure it out, right? right? Often in my house today, right? <laughs> it's just been like battery that's, yeah. you know. That's dying, um, right? Yeah, that's dying, right? So then, okay, so you, the battery's dying, right? But then... I don't have any extra batteries, <laughs> right? So I will, right? It's because it's super annoying, right? Yeah. Okay. And it, it's designed, the sound is designed to make you scared. So mm-hmm. it doesn't feel good to sit there with the sound alarm, you know, the, yeah. the going, right? So then, okay, I want to turn this thing off, but I don't want to die from, you know, smoke, but there's mm-hmm. no smoke, yeah. <laughs> right? So I will order the extra batteries on Amazon, right? right? And for the next two days, I will live with the risk, <laughs> right? That if there's smoke, I won't, I won't get the indicator indicator from this particular alarm, but right. I have many other alarms. Right. So I'm safe. I'm fine. Yeah. So I'll do something about it. And you, you will do that too. Same thing with in the morning, if the morning alarm clock goes off, danger, danger. If you don't wake up now, yeah. you might be late, right? Mm-hmm. And then you make an executive decision, right? Yeah. <laughs> you say, okay, I'm going to turn it off or mm-hmm. I'm going to get up or I'm going to snooze it, right? Yeah. But with these these voices in your head, yeah. you kind of live with them. Yeah. So many people live with them for two, three, four years yeah. thinking about leaving a job or... Or decades, honestly. Whatever. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And it's super painful. Yeah. And, it's, and you have to turn off your feelings then because yeah. it's too painful. So yeah. then you sort of start walking around like a zombie. A zombie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The last thing I'll say is, you know, what for myself, what I found is that taking action is the best solution to fear, right? So it's like, okay, you know, the whole thing was like, okay, so I'm if I become a consultant, I'm going to be like homeless because I can't pay my bills because no one will hire me. And, you know, I went down this like very yeah. dark tube and I was like, okay, so, so I will. I was like, yeah. well, so I will. If worse comes to shove, I can be an executive director again. Yeah. Which is like a pretty good plan. Yes. yes. You can give yourself some time, right? right? And also like, how about I just work on a website and see if I can just have a presence. Okay, what if I just, you know, take on a small client to see how it goes and if they'll pay, you know, and then sort of it builds on itself that you get momentum. So I think controlling your mind to control your emotions so that you can take action feels right. Yeah, I mean, they say even breathing is movement, right? Yeah. And when you're not moving... And it, like when you're feeling stuck, it's a really debilitating, disempowering, demoralizing feeling. Mm-hmm. So I'm, yeah, I'm a huge proponent of taking any action. Just take the next small <laughs> right, action. And see what yep. comes up. Again, like really depending on the client though, some people, like what's your strengths, mm-hmm. right? What are your strengths, right? So mm-hmm. if you are someone who... So I'm a huge proponent of leading with your strengths, mm-hmm. right? And then and then using those strengths to cover for the things that you need to work more on, mm-hmm. right? So for me, I was really stuck on like the certification piece and I kept thinking I need a business plan, right? Mm-hmm. But I but I'm really like people based mm-hmm. and I really 
do a lot for people in my network and mm-hmm. they do a lot for me and it's, it doesn't feel like a transactional thing it's right. like we're all growing and doing stuff together yeah so that i mean leaning on a coach and talking to my friends about it and and getting just getting started mm-hmm. with people who once i started sharing once i was brave enough to share that oh i'm I'm a coach now, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. right? Work just came. Of course. Right? Yeah, yeah. So it worked for me that way. For someone who works much better with planning or I'm not thinking of the right example right now. Like I don't necessarily think that everyone should do exactly what I mm-hmm. did or how I did it. But once you've done the things that you would normally done, do to mm-hmm. start your business, right? Mm-hmm. Like you have your concept or you've talked to people. Mm-hmm. Before we started recording, you you shared an example of a friend who is just who has all the pieces to start mm-hmm. consulting, right? So once you've done that and you still can't get started, there's there's something internal. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. So it's not just to say, hey, just go do it. Yeah. Like I'm not saying be responsible, you know, like there are people that can do it that way, mm-hmm. but I'm I'm like I call myself like a realistic optimist or mm-hmm. optimistic realist. Somebody gave me that name, right? So I do believe in like, we have to make money, Mm -hmm. (laughs) right? We have to make plans and, you know, not everyone should, you know, quit their full-time job and jump straight into Mm -hmm. coaching or consulting or whatever it is that they might want to do, right? But think about, yeah, think about where you're feeling blocked, right? If you feel like I'm not the kind of person who can go straight into something like this, then start it as a side hustle. Yeah. There are so many different options. Yeah. But just think about what really, like if you're being honest, what are you scared of? Yep. Right? Yep. What's really hard for you about this decision? Yep. And then start doing something about it. Yeah. Right? 100%. So we are wrapping up our time together. I will make sure to include your information in the mm. show notes. And so for anyone who would be interested in working with Caroline, who is, she's an amazing coach. <laughs> you can get in touch with her. Her info will be in the show notes. And I really Thanks, thank you yeah. for coming. And it's always sharing. so much fun. It is thank so much you. fun. We're going to have to do another podcast about all the other things <laughs> that we want to talk about. Thanks. Bye. Thank you. Bye.